Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church Podcast. This episode is taken from our series exploring the book of Jonah, as we discover together a story that is all about the goodness of God, a story that leads us to Jesus, and a story that invites us to be transformed by the wonder of who he is. Thanks for joining us. Jonah 3 verse 10 to Jonah 4 verse 4. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Okay, good morning, everyone. Hello, great to be with you today. My name is Rich. I'm going to be taking us through this next part in the story of Jonah together. Um, So where are we up to so far in the story? Well, uh, Jonah has eventually made it to Nineveh. Uh, He's made it there via a failed attempt to run away. Um, Three days of reckoning in the belly of a big fish. He's preached a frankly terrible sermon Uh, which doesn't mention the Ninevites and what they've uh, done wrong or what they need to do right or even God at all. Uh, And yet, even despite that, the whole city has uh, fallen in the dust to cry out for God's mercy. That's where we got up to last week, the most kind of surprising, unexpected, unlikely twist uh, that the people of a, a city of blood, as it says elsewhere in the Bible, the city uh, of brutal conquerors of nations should humble themselves so dramatically uh, with so little convincing. In fact, if we were to end the story uh, at the end of chapter three uh, and then rate Jonah against the other prophets of the Old Testament in terms of effectiveness, he'd probably have to be right at the top. Uh, Never before, nowhere else in the whole story uh, does a prophet of God carry the word so powerfully uh, that preaching what is just five words in Hebrew leads to such radical transformation of such a massively important city in the ancient world. If the story ends with chapter three, Jonah might go down in history as one of the greatest prophets of all time. But over the next two weeks, we're going to see that the story doesn't end like that. In fact, it ends quite differently. It ends in a way that's actually quite difficult for us uh, in 21st century Britain in particular to get our heads around because it doesn't end with the kind of clarity that we like our stories to finish with. See, Jonah doesn't react to Nineveh's repentance like we might expect the most successful prophet in all of history to do. 
That's what we saw in the verses that Jonah's read out for us. This is what Jonah, uh, that's what it says in Jonah 4. But to Jonah, all of this, everything that's happened, this radical transformation seemed very wrong. And he became angry. The city has indeed, as Jonah preaches uh, in chapter 3, been overturned, but it's been overturned in the opposite way to the way that he's been hoping. It's been overturned in precisely the way that he'd been afraid that God would act all along. See, it's at this point in the story that Jonah reveals the motivation behind his flight from the Lord right at the very start of the story. Not fear of retribution from the Ninevites, his enemies, for his words, but fear that God's retribution upon the city would be expressed in his mercy towards them, that he would overturn their hearts and their lives rather than their buildings. This is what Jonah claims to have known all along, that God being the kind of God that he is, would be much more likely to express his anger by saving Nineveh than by destroying it. Philip Carey writes this, there is nothing more characteristic of the anger of God than his turning away from it. His aim is always to overturn the evil that destroys his creation. And he can accomplish this justly by destroying the evildoer, but yet more justly and more gloriously by turning the evil heart into something new. And Jonah knows this. He knows this. So he takes words from God's own mouth and he turns them back against him. I knew he says in verse two, I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And that's a quote from Exodus chapter 34. It's actually God's own words about himself. And they're words that come in a moment where God is meeting with Moses on a mountain, a moment where the people of God that he's rescued from slavery, he's brought them out of bondage, and they've just messed up completely. They've turned away from him. Moses has gone away to be with God for just a few days, and instead they've built a golden calf and worshipped that. And so Moses goes to meet with God, to intercede on behalf of the people, to cry out to God for mercy. And God relents. He declares himself to be, as Jonah quotes, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And that story that we're hyperlinking back to is in fact pointing back to a story even earlier in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham, fresh from hearing God's promise to bless him, to make him into a mighty nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, is confronted by a city of evil, but cries out to God to spare them because he knows the kind of God that God is, a God whose desire is to bring blessing 
and abundance and life to all of creation. Do you see the similarities here? Follow the breadcrumbs through the story as we've been doing right throughout this series. We've got a prophet, a sinful people, and a declaration of God's identity. Except in this story, instead of coming to God to plead for mercy on behalf of the people, as Moses did, as Abraham did, Jonah is doing the opposite. He's preaching a sermon that's so bad, it's almost an act of prophetic sabotage. He's almost doing everything he can to complete kind of the the checkbox of his mission, but do it in such a way that there's almost the smallest chance that Nineveh will respond to his message. He's almost crying out to God, not to save the city, but to destroy it, because he can't bear for them to receive mercy too. It was only a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Jonah's prayer in chapter two, when he's in the belly of the fish, when he's in the depths of chaos, and he says, I will say, I will declare, salvation comes from the Lord. As he cries out, asking God for life in the midst of death. And then he sees God's salvation come, first to himself, and then to a whole city. What's his response? He cries out for death rather than life. If life means a world where God is this merciful, this kind, this good. And the irony of the whole thing is that Jonah is an Israelite. If God had been the kind of God that Jonah wanted, a God quick to anger, rather than slow, a God zealous in destroying his enemies, Jonah wouldn't even exist. The people's sin with the golden calf, that story from Moses, in fact, the whole history of the Old Testament of Israel turning their back on God again and again of him endlessly pursuing them with his mercy and his grace and his love. If God wasn't the kind of God He revealed himself to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jonah wouldn't even be there in the first place. But he can't see that. For Jonah, a world where God is like God isn't the world that he wants. A world where God is true to his own character, not just to Israel, but through Israel to the whole world is a world that he can't bear to live in. Take away my life, he declares in verse three, for it is better for me to die than to live. And you know, I think this poses a real challenge for us as readers. I'm glad the story doesn't end in chapter three. Because chapter four confronts us with a question that is right on the sharp edge of what it means for us now, in this context, in this place, all these years later, to follow Jesus. Where do we want God to be the God of our own making, rather than the God he is? Where have we put God 
in a box so that he conforms to my preferences, my prejudices, my perspectives. Where have we let ourselves, our culture, or our experiences determine who we think God is rather than who he actually is? For Jonah, he wants a God of his own making who will destroy his enemies rather than save them. And although throughout this story, uh, Jonah's set up to be this kind of comedy character, he's almost this ridiculous figure that we're supposed to laugh at, I think he is getting at something there that we can all relate to. See, it's one thing to recognize our own brokenness, to look at our own lives and see our need for God and say, yes, Lord, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. And to know that God is speaking a word of welcome, of forgiveness, of belonging and identity and purpose over us. That's the invitation for us to know today as followers of Jesus. It's quite another for us to think of our enemy, the person we just can't stand, the one where everything they do just gets under our skin and grates on us. The person who has wronged us in whatever way, from cutting us off in traffic on the way to church this morning to the very worst of what humanity can do to one another. And to know that God's heart is to be as gracious and merciful and loving to them as he has been to us. And that's hard. That's hard. I know that even in this room, even amongst those of us watching online, there will be stories of those who've known tremendous pain and suffering caused by others, tremendous wrongs that have been done to us. And the idea that God's heart is to extend to that person the same mercy and grace and love that he's shown to us. And not just that, even worse than that, like Jonah, that God might want to do it through us, that he might want to use us to bring his love to these people. It's too much to bear. It's too much to bear. It was for Jonah. How could we possibly live with that? How could we live with a God like that? And even if we don't have a story exactly like that, the reality is that my life is full of moments where it feels like God doesn't measure up to my expectations or my desires for who he should be. Moments when, to be honest, I look to God and I know I've just felt disappointed. Whether it's sickness or grief, looking to God and wondering why he would let this happen or why he hasn't acted in that situation. Whether it's sin or struggles 
in our lives where we're calling out for breakthrough, but it just never seems to come. Whether it's that thing that we've been praying about for years and years that just seems no closer to happening. If we've been following Jesus for more than five minutes, we'll have a story where if we're being honest, it feels like God hasn't done what we were wanting or expecting, where he hasn't been who we wanted him to be. And it's really important that we reckon with those two expressions of him not meeting our expectations in the people he's called us to and the things he's done and not done in our lives. That's what I've been trying to do as I have been preparing to come and share with you this week. The truth is, I'm still coming to terms with how I've neglected people who desperately need Jesus because of the stupidest things, because of the tone of their voice or the way that they dress or the people that they hang out with. I'm still wrestling with the grief of people I've lost in my life. I'm still trying to figure out the ways I've let myself live disappointed with God rather than owning up to it and letting him deal with it. And that's something that we all need to do. Because the Bible's word to us, what is, I believe, the Spirit's call to us this morning is this. If we think there's nothing that God disagrees with us about, no area of our lives which doesn't measure up, no opinion of ours which doesn't line up with his, what we're worshipping isn't God himself. It's the God of ourselves. If we and I don't take to heart the message of this chapter, the challenge from scripture to throw out the idols that we've put in God's place, to shake off the ways that we have pigeonholed him, the unfair demands that we've placed on him to be who we want, then it's ourselves that we've put on the throne, not God. And when we do that, we will only ever be left like Jonah is, full of anger and frustration. If we don't respond with repentance, we'll respond as Jonah does, with rage. That's the contrast that the story sets up for us. The people of Nineveh who repent and the prophet of God who rages. And the question for us as readers approaching this text is who are we going to be? Who are we going to be when God doesn't line up with our expectations? That's what God asks Jonah in verse four. But the Lord replied to him, is it right for you to be angry? See, Jonah gets angry. In verse one, that phrase, he became angry, it's like he burned with anger, where God's anger is slow to burn. Jonah's erupts. And it's not that it's never okay 
to be angry. It's right there in the definition of who God is that he gets angry sometimes. It's right to be angry at the pain and the brokenness and the injustice in our world and in our lives. It's that to leave anger unchecked always leads to death and destruction. That's forever been the story of humanity from Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel, a story of a brother who can't bear to see God's grace poured out on another, which drives him to anger, to violence, and to bloodshed. That's what we've been thinking about already this morning. It's poignant to be speaking about these themes on today of all days, a day when we stand in the shadow of history and allow ourselves to reckon in the silence with the suffering caused by conflict to sit for just a couple of minutes with the brokenness of our world that has created the horror of war. To remember those who've given their lives to shield us from its brutality. And I think to cry out to God and say, never again. To pray to haste the day when swords are beaten into plowshares and the Prince of Peace declares his rest over all creation. And just as we see the effects of unchecked anger on a global scale, it's no less true for each of us individually. If we allow everything that we've looked at the ways that God doesn't measure up to my expectations or my desires for who he should be, at the things that have hurt us or disappointed us or frustrated us, if we let them fester and burn within, they will always eventually come out as anger that consumes goodness and leaves only destruction. Destruction of ourselves, destruction of our relationships with others, of our relationship with God. What we need isn't rage, it's repentance. This is what Jonah can't get his head around. But gently, graciously, God is going to spend the rest of this chapter showing him just how he hasn't given up on the Ninevites. He hasn't given up on Jonah. He doesn't give up on us either. D.L. Moody wrote about how before we can pray for God to come and fill us, we need to pray for him to come and empty us. To come and empty us of all of the stuff that we've let get in the way of who he is. And that's what repentance is. The word itself literally just means to turn 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction. It's about realigning ourselves with who God is rather than who we've wanted him to be. It's about allowing everything else to drain away so that we might see God clearly again, dwelling on the richness of the one who is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger abounding in love, leaning into that truth and taking hold of it and allowing it to change everything for us. And the ultimate reason 
that we can trust and believe that this God is good, that he is worth turning ourselves to, that he is worth everything. Even when his goodness doesn't line up with our expectations or our desires. The reason we can trust this God is because he himself chose a way of suffering that none of us would ever choose, that none of us could ever choose. When we hesitate at Jonah's task to save Nineveh, at Jesus' call to love our enemies, when the picture of that person comes into our mind and we pray, God, not them, anyone else but them, he shows us how. This God who stands before a sinful, broken city and doesn't condemn it, but weeps over it. This God who stands before his enemies with all power and majesty and authority at his back and chooses not to destroy them, but to commit himself to them, to submit to them, even to death, in order to rescue and redeem them, to justly and gloriously make them his own. This God who demonstrates what it is to extend mercy and grace and love to his enemies, even in the very act of hanging on a cross, because it's through that that he makes a way for them to come. This God who works in this story through an unfaithful Israelite to bring blessing and restoration to a messed up city, to a needy people, comes in Christ to bring the invitation of blessing and restoration to a messed up world and to our needy selves. This God who doesn't turn his back on us in our worst moments, but works within them to bring life. And the question for us is how will we respond? How will we respond to this God of outrageous, scandalous, offensive mercy and grace? Will we rage or will we repent? Will we dare to believe, not just that this God is for us, but that he's for our enemies too? that he might be wanting to reveal himself to them, not in spite of us, but through us. We dare to believe that the power of the cross to bring reconciliation might stretch beyond, might smash through all of the barriers we've put up in our society and our lives that stop us from taking the kingdom of the Prince of Peace to anyone and everyone who will hear it? Will we dare to let him undo the ways that we've kicked him off the throne in favor of a God who matches our expectations and our desires for who he should be?
in a moment's time, uh, the band are going to join me up here again, and we're going to sing again. And as we do, as God comes and meets with us in that moment by his spirit, whether we're here in the room, whether we're watching online, it's an opportunity for each of us to come to realign ourselves again with the wonder of who this God is, a God full of compassion, full of mercy and grace and love. To come and repent of the ways we've set ourselves against others, the ways we've set ourselves against God's own character. To pray for him to meet us as we stand and stir us, change us, empty us, and fill us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, Christ was not nailed to the cross as ornament or decoration for our lives. If we would have him, we must recognize that he makes fundamental claims on our entire being. Will we be those today who dare to believe that this God is good, that he's good for us, and that he's good for this world. Why don't we pray while the band come up again? Lord, I thank you for your unfailing mercy and grace. God, I thank you that your very character is one who turns away from his anger in order to bring restoration and reconciliation. God, I thank you for what you have done in my life. And I pray that even when it's hard, even in the midst of my brokenness and my pain, my frustration, my disappointment, Lord, you would be working to realign my perspectives, to reset the way I see the world, to draw me into what you're wanting to do. That, Lord, you would help me to turn to you and know again your word of comfort and wholeness and identity over me and know your invitation that through me you want to bring this to the world through us as a community you want to change the shape of this city this nation and the nations but we dare to believe in you again God Amen Amen